Welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I am the priest, Carl Stevens. And I am the rabbi, Daniel Bogard. And today we have gotten all the way up to Exodus chapter 19. Uh, you know, it seems like we've made ridiculously slow progress here, Daniel. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. Uh, yeah, but that was also our idea here that we would it go was. slow. This is yes. this is uh, that's what an apologetic commentary looks like, by the way. And this is worth taking our time over, and and uh, we've learned a lot. And our our one listener is still with us, so you know. I, my uh, brother is a dedicated listener, but he tells me that he listens on uh, one and a half speed. Really? One and a half speed? Because we talk too slow. Can't understand why. I would actually recommend that you listeners out there listen on half speed to savor every moment. (laughs) Uh, And speaking of listeners, I have a big thank you uh, to make to Kathleen Crossman, who uh, last week I inadvertently uploaded the wrong audio file. for So for about four days, uh, the the episode was just me talking to myself for about 12 minutes. And I would not have known I had done this if Kathleen hadn't been so generous and kind as to uh, write in. And I wonder know. if you're trying to uh, send me a message there, Carl. Uh, I do not want to remove you from the podcast, but because <laughs> really I have nothing interesting to say. <laughs> so, so, uh, I think it was wonderful of Kathleen to put up with me for 12 minutes, but, uh, it was even more wonderful that she made sure that your voice was heard in the cosmos. I feel like we should send her an official, uh, uh lost in the wilderness t-shirt. Uh, w- once we, once we have one, we have no swag, dear listeners. That's part we of our problem. Swag. That's exactly what we need. Well, but we are trying to be new people and leave behind the slavery to, uh, to capitalism and materialism that kept the slaves in Egypt. So, but I don't, I don't think those little pop things on the back of the cell phones lost in the wilderness. I'm seeing it right now. Our faces on there. I think it's the way to go. Uh, you know, all right, listeners, we're having a Talmudic disagreement. Uh, about swag. Uh, but before we go down that rabbit hole and, and your poor brother not only has to listen to us at 1.5 speed, but also skip ahead 30 seconds. Let's get into chapter 19. Um, and Daniel, you were saying to me that this is the chapter that has the most famous midrash. Yeah, it's got a ton of famous midrash. Uh, you know, for the Jewish tradition, at least the rabbinic tradition, Everything points towards Sinai. Sinai becomes the purpose of everything that's happened before this. Uh, the liberation is not liberation for its own sake. And in that sense, it's an interesting Jewish value there to think about that freedom isn't something that has absolute value, just instrumental value. Freedom is about what we can do with that freedom and not a goal in its own. Uh, yeah, and that, that is great. We, um, at our Bible study at St. John's uh, the other night, uh, somebody said, you know, basically raised the question of what is the meaning of life, right? Like, what is the purpose uh, if we're always going to fail and we're always going to sin, we're always going to f- fall down or fall apart? And the answer was, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind, all your soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, but it, we don't get an end of the movie where we blow up the Death Star. It just doesn't happen. No. <laughs> so, no. Um, and, and even Star Wars doesn't get the end of the movie where they blow up the Death Star. Uh, the dark side will, will remain regardless. 
Well, you know, I appropriate enough because this week is the one and only time during our podcast that the uh, Jewish calendar of readings, the Parsha, uh, lines up with our chapter here. Uh, appropriate enough then to uh, mention that uh, the way that Jews read the Torah is we read until the very end of Deuteronomy and then we start over again. That uh-huh. we never get that moment, right? Because there is a entering into the promised land moment. You should be able to celebrate at least the first chapter of Joshua. Yeah. Uh, but we never do that. We always stand on the abyss. We watch Moses die. We get ready for the Jews to enter into the promised land and we start the story over again. That um, is re- that's really beautiful. You never um, get the moment. Since you are laying on us uh, some some knowledge of Judaism, I, I also want to point out to our listeners that we are late in recording this week because you were off blessing trees or something on Wednesday, right? Yes. Tu Bishvat, the uh, New Year of the Trees. There are four New Years that are uh, described in Judaism, but uh, this is the day that how old a tree is, is determined by. So if you look at a lot of the rules in Leviticus deal with, you know, you can't take fruit from a tree until it's X number of years old. Uh, so the question is for tax purposes. And let's remember that a lot of Leviticus, uh, we look at it as sort of spiritual scripture, but it's really about taxes. Um, uh, that, uh, they needed to know when was the day that a tree counted as having been, uh, a new year, a new, uh, a new age. Uh, so that's how it emerged. But today it is my favorite holiday. It's uh, traditional to have four glasses of wine, just like a Passover Seder, uh, going from white to red. And you go through all sorts of stages of fruits and nuts, things that have a hard shell that you can't eat, but an inner piece that you can and uh, vice versa. And I, anyhow, it's, it's the most lovely holiday. So you sit down and you eat all sorts of uh, uh, delicious fruits. I, I think I changed my mind about the swags because we in my in my vision is now a bumper sticker that says Leviticus is for accountants. Leviticus is for <laughs> accountants. There you go. Uh, okay. Well, so it is appropriate that we have now come to Mount Sinai, where all that wonderful tax law will be handed down. Um, so let's let's get into it. Should I start reading Daniel, or sh- or would you like to go for it? On the third new moon of the Israelites going out from Egypt, on this day did they come to the wilderness of Sinai, and they journeyed onward from Rephidim, and they came to the wilderness of Sinai, and Israel camped there over against the mountain. Midrash number one, camp. Camp, yeah. Um, so first, let's, let's locate ourselves, right? This is another journey that's happening. Uh and, you know, I think it's interesting because this is going to be the journey, right? This is actually the moment of Sinai. This is the moment of the giving of the Ten Commandments and uh, all that wonderful Charlton Heston uh, stuff. Uh, but it doesn't start out that way. It starts out like just another journey. Okay. Through the wilderness. But then when we get to – we have a, a nice midrash from Rashi here. Yeah, please. Um at all their other encampments, the verse says, Vayachanu. How is that? Vayachanu. Well done. Oh, so close. So close. Uh, which means they camped in the plural. Here it says, 
Vayakhan. Well done. <laughs> he camped in the singular, for all other encampments were in argument and dissent, whereas here they camped as one person with one heart. So this is the closest that Judaism gets to an idea of um, sort of an inerrant text, that the, the text is perfect, uh-huh. um, which normally is an idea I associate more with evangelical Christianity than I do with Judaism. Uh, but in Judaism, the notion is that there is nothing in the Torah that is a mistake. So anything that looks to be a mistake must have purpose and meaning. Uh, so here, uh, and this is one of those great things that you only get when you're dealing with the original text and you don't get it in translation here. The word for encamps is in the singular rather than the plural, right? It's a question of, are they a people as one unit or multiple? And it probably what we're really looking at here is, uh, spelling error typo, right? Uh-huh. Uh, but it becomes an opportunity to talk about something else, uh, that the notion becomes that this is a moment of unity. Uh, that there's been such a fractured uh, existence prior to this, and certainly there will be a fractured existence after this, but there's something about this experience that they're all about to go through uh, that for a moment at least creates a sense of unity. All right, listeners. So place a metaphorical finger on this verse. Keep it there for the next 13 weeks. Because when we get to chapter 32 of the Golden Calf, we're going to find that there's not actually a lot of unity going on at the foot of the mountain. after Moses has been gone for 40 days. So, uh, okay, so in this moment there is unity. Without Moses around, it quickly dissipates. Or maybe it's unity, but it's unity for something that is uh, definitely not approved. Uh, Yeah, interesting. Interesting. Yeah, there is a unity that occurs at the bottom of the mountain. Uh, when they make the golden calf. Yeah, yeah, just a kind of negative unity. The unity of the mob or the orgy. Um, all right, well, let's go on, although mobs and orgies are fun to talk about. Um, and Moses had gone up to God, and the Lord called out to him from the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and shall you tell to the Israelites, You yourselves saw what I did to Egypt, and I bore you on the wings of eagles, and I brought you to me. Okay, that wings of eagles, uh, at the risk of offending some of our listeners, that text uh, was taken in the 1970s or 60s uh, and used by Roman Catholics for one of their their new worship songs, and I hate it. (laughs) But... (laughs) Uh, it's, uh, you, he, he shall lift you up on eagle's wings or something, or I shall lift you up on eagle's wings. Anyway, I, I deeply dislike it, but that is all just personal taste and has nothing to do with moral or ethics. So tell me, tell me why I shouldn't turn away from this verse in horror. I, you know, I guess all I'm having is uh flashbacks to my senior year of high school and my choir saying soar like an eagle. Oh, uh, interesting. Also having moments of horror here. So, you know, really we're, we're in similar <laughs> places. Basically, whenever eagles come into popular music, things go very, very wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's a midrash here. I don't know what to make of it. I really like this midrash, though. Uh, it says, what does it mean that we were carried on eagles' wings? And the idea is that all other birds hold their young between their feet uh, because they fear the birds flying above them. The eagle, however, fears only man, lest an arrow be shot at it. Uh 
So eagles carry their young on their wings. I don't know if this is true. Do eagles really carry their young on their wings? That seems really uh, logistically impossible. But it does does seem problematic. Does seem yeah. problematic. Though you have to think, interestingly, right, that the authors of the biblical text as well as the authors of this text here probably have a better knowledge of that than we do. Right? Maybe they're, when their fledglings are learning to fly, uh, they kind of fly above the wings? Yeah. I don't know, but uh, I'm now going to start writing the screenplay for Disney's Eagles, which will have a bunch of very cute uh, eaglets riding on their mother's wings. <laughs> um, anyway, okay. <laughs> yeah, dear listeners, all I do is provide the dumb jokes. Anyway, um, so, okay, so the eagle flies higher than anything else, and therefore it will be safe. That's why it's being used here. That's why it's a, a pertinent metaphor um, and probably in the song, it means that God will keep you safe because you'd be flying above all other predators. But it's also an interesting meditation on the notion that it's fellow human beings that are the real danger. Right. Mm, yeah. Uh, those are those are the predators we really have to worry about. Those are the predators we have to worry about. Yeah, I like that. Or don't like that, but you know. Yeah, yeah. Um Okay, so this journey across the wilderness so far has been described by God as a journey on wings of eagles to the foot of Mount Sinai. However, we know from the preceding chapters that the uh, Hebrews did not experience it that way. No, certainly not, right? That's, that, it's quite a gloss over what their experience had been these last few months. Exactly. You can see like somebody standing out there in the crowd and be like, oh, Eagle's Wing. Sure. That's what that was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we've arrived at Sinai. Yes. Where is Sinai? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Actually, there's uh, a number of people who believe that they know and have turned a mountain into a tourist destination. Okay. Uh, I. But yeah, no, I mean, Jewish tradition says that nobody knows. Is that the same in Christian tradition? It's the same in scientific uh, and historical tradition. <laughs> I don't okay. know if this is a Christian, but uh, we have a, a deacon in our diocese, William Sangray, who is a, a geologist by training, and he did a video for us uh, and was very clear that nobody knows. <laughs> so. so it actually is really a, a, a very broad understanding in Judaism that no one knows where Sinai is and that that is on purpose. Uh, there's uh, one of my favorite Midrashim uh, says that in the ownerless wilderness was the Torah given to the people of Israel. For if it were given in the land of Israel, the residents of the land of Israel would say it is ours. And if it were given in some other place, the residents of that place would say it is ours. Therefore, it was given in the wilderness so that anyone who wishes to acquire it may acquire it. So does that mean it is not the exclusive possession of the, the people, of the people of Israel? Yeah, right. Uh, that's certainly the idea here. And you have to wonder how much this is a after the fact commentary of Jews who have experienced that their stories, our stories have become the stories of the world in some way mm -hmm. or half of the world. Um, when was this written? So this is 
So this is Mechilta de Rashbi. Uh, so this is going to be Middle Ages. Oh, okay. So at that point, they really they really knew that a whole bunch of people were taking their story and and had it uh, appropriated appropriated it to their own ends. Yeah, there's an interesting conversation about cultural appropriation here. There sure is. <laughs> That's that's one of my daughter's bugaboos. I get I get uh, many lectures about cultural appropriation from her. Not really directed at me, just directed in general at the world. Um, and I, it, that's probably because it's it's a big cultural moment for cultural appropriation. But yeah, what did you think of the fact that Christians and Muslims feel fine about just kind of snagging their story and saying, "Oh no, this is really about us." You know, I always think uh, th- there are these Jewish prayers that talk about. Uh how in the messianic moment, everyone will acknowledge our God is God. Uh, and in particular, actually, if you go back to the middle ages, there are a number of Jewish thinkers who are struck at the truly deeply downtrodden and almost destroyed nature of the Jewish people. And at the same time, the, what seems to them, the absolute acceptance of Jewish story. Hmm. Um, But I don't know. I guess for me, more than anything, it's a reminder that there's no such thing as culture without appropriation. Which I agree with. The question is, do you give credit? And in your act, I I guess the difference is between appropriation and spoiler, which is basically – Taking somebody from somebody somebody else's something from somebody else's culture, saying that it's your own as a way of showing your dominance over that culture. Huh. Um, so there are, for instance, Christian crosses that have um, little. Um, oh, what are they? Uh, little carvings of the head of an emperor set in the middle of the cross, with the implicit claim being that this is actually a picture of Christ. And in a way, it's just a giant F you from the Christians to the Romans, right? Sure. Saying, say, nice picture of an emperor you have there. It's ours now. <laughs> um, so, so that is the question. You know, is it um, respectful? Is it full of love? Is it um, full of admiration and saying, uh, is, it, is it full of a sense of wonder that two things that shouldn't go together, do go together and make something new that is splendid? Uh, or is it simply a giant F you to the people who you're stealing from? Well, you know, the one that has, I, I keep smiling about is originally when we were starting uh, the rabbi in residence program and looking at the read of Exodus, uh, I had suggested that we put together some sort of mock Seder. Yeah. Uh, mock Passover Seder. I thought it would be a neat experience uh, for uh, Episcopalians and for priests in particular to take part in. Uh, and what was so interesting is there was pushback from priests at, that had a sense that this was cultural appropriation. Uh, well, it's not only a worry about that. It's a worry about co- something called supersessionism. Uh, super yes, that's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. Um, which is in Christianity for a long time, our theology has and our reading of the Old Testament has been based around the idea that everything points to Jesus, right? So the prophets are talking about Jesus. Uh, Certain people like Jonah is a typology of Jesus. You know, the the three days in the whale or the three days in the tomb, et cetera. Interesting. I've never heard that. 
Oh yeah, it's uh, it's in the catacombs in Rome. You can you can go there and see that painted on the wall of the catacombs. <sighs> uh, so that was an early one. Jesus um, as Jonah, because I always think of Jonah as being total satire. Yeah, well, appropriately, it should be read that way, I think, but it, but it wasn't cool. for quite a while because everything was thought to point towards Jesus, and so now. Uh, after, well, really after the Holocaust, you know, we start asking ourselves questions like, why did this happen? And one of the answers that we leveled against ourselves, one of the, the honest critiques was because throughout our history, we've been saying that these people and their story don't matter. And if somebody doesn't matter, it's pretty easy to kill them. Um, so that, that's where the concern lies, right? It's not just, appropriation it's we have an ugly history of stealing from the jews and like killing them and we are we are not going to do either of those things anymore <laughs> so um still it stuck with me that this is one of those places where the rabbi was comfortable and the <laughs> christians were not and, and, and there's something yeah. beautiful there but yeah but still oh. Well, you know, it's funny because so often these these concerns are really about us, right? So that concern is really about us. It's, sure. it's we have been, you know, we are trying to change, and this is one way we can think of to change. And I was actually in a meeting a week or two ago where we were talking about uh, like anti racism training, and a couple of my African American friends were like, "We're not interested in doing that." And I said, "Why?" And they said, "Because we've spent our lives." trying to teach white people not to be racist and we don't get anything out of it, frankly. <laughs> and the only thing we're interested in doing is something that actually benefits everyone involved, not uh, just the white people who are trying not to be racist. I was like, Oh crap. I've made it all about me once again. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yes, it's an attack. It, it, you know, we have a tendency to make it all about us and saying no to the Seder probably is that tendency. But then again, uh, after, uh, centuries of anti-Semitism. We got some work to do. Totally. <laughs> we don't want to do. You know, we don't. We don't want to set ourselves back. Totally, totally. No, I. I appreciated it. Just you know, these. It's a reminder that these conversations about appropriation aren't clear and aren't easy. And cultural right. appropriation, I think, isn't is a more neutral term than it is commonly used as. Right. Right. Uh, right, because without it, you would not have the bon mi sandwich, which is one of the culinary greatnesses of the world, in uh, my mind. Amen. So, okay, anyway. All right, going on from bon mi's, I believe we were on verse 6. Verse 6, and okay. As for you, you will become for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. So actually, this idea of a kingdom of priests... Uh, goes along with that previous uh, midrash we talked about that the Torah was given in the wilderness so that no one could claim ownership of it. And one of the most sort of radical notions that Maimonides, the, the greatest philosopher of Judaism, uh, came up with was this idea that actually to be a Jew is not at all ethnic or in that sense religious. It is philosophical. And anyone who accepts the notion and sort of the um, – heaviness of these ideas has become a Jew, according to Maimonides, huh. which is really a radical idea for Judaism. And one of the things that he's not accepted on. Right, right. I can imagine a lot of people rejecting that notion, but, but it's a universalism of intellect that he creates. 
Right. Right. Um, well, yeah, I could go down a whole rabbit hole. I'm not going to, though, because it would, it would bore your brother, who is already, you know, hearing our little chipmunk voices. He's up to uh, 1.75 speed, exactly. <laughs> He's only been listening for four minutes, but the rest of you have been listening for 20 <laughs> minutes, so well, <laughs> let's move on. <laughs> not to mention those who took my advice and are listening on half speed. Right, right, right. Uh, you, you, The people who are meditating... While this drones in their ear, like a we actually, we have a lot of people who write in and tell us that we're very useful for bedtime. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Anyway, uh, going on, verse seven. And Moses came and he called to the elders of the people and he set before them all these words that the Lord had charged him. And all the people answered together and said, everything that the Lord has spoken, we shall do. And Moses brought back the people's words to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Look, I'm about to come to you in the utmost cloud so that the people may hear as I speak to you and you as well. They will trust for all time. And Moses told the people's words to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. And they shall wash their cloaks and they shall ready themselves for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down before the eyes of all the people on Mount Sinai. So. The people go to prepare themselves for this moment of revelation. And there's this sense that everything on the other side should be good. That that once we are past the Sinai moment, right, the moment of redemption, or maybe the second moment of redemption, that we should be living in a redeemed world. And yet, you know, to bring this into our contemporary context, I think the great failure of religiosity, no matter where we are talking or what type of religiosity we're talking about, is that being religious doesn't seem to have much of any connection to being a good person. And that's our main claim, right? Follow us and you will be a good person. And yet there doesn't seem to be such a connection here. Uh, it's not necessarily an ethical system, right? No. And if it is, we're radically bad at it. We being the religious society. Um, yeah. So there's a midrash here that uh, I love with this idea. Uh, this is from verse eight, where it says, all the people answered together and said, all that God has spoken, we will do. The midrash reads into this and says that God actually said to the people of Israel, I require guarantors that I won't just give you the Torah. How do I know you're actually going to create the society you're supposed to? Said the people of Israel, the heaven and the earth shall be our guarantors. Said God, they won't last forever said the people of Israel, our ancestors will guarantee it, said God. They are busy, right? They, they've already merited what they will merit, huh. said the people of Israel. Finally, our children will guarantee it and said, God, these indeed are excellent guarantors. So we are not good at being either moral or religious. So God doesn't entirely trust us. Um, and our ancestors weren't so good at it and our ancestors weren't so good at it. Um, but we are just fine at passing the buck to our children. We're just fine at passing the buck. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, uh, before the show, we were saying, you know, this might be a, a climate change analogy. This might be a national debt analogy. Uh, this should not be surprising to any American living today. No, 
No, unfortunately, unfortunately. Um, but there's something so human about it, I think. And I think that's why it's here that this is right. I, I mean, I, I always, I feel this and I say this often at baby namings that I feel this profound sense of melancholy, uh, at baby namings because this is a child who deserves better than the world that we have given her. Mm. And yet this is the world that we have given her and our children are our guarantors, whether they signed up to be or not. Well, yeah, <laughs> I have no dumb joke to make to that one because it is just abundantly true. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, and, and it will, once again, if we have our finger kept in this chapter and are skipping ahead to chapter 32, we will see this play out pretty quickly. Like, in a very real way, God is right not to trust the people. Totally. Totally. Um, yeah. All right. Okay. Well, Shall we? Let's, yes. Uh, verse 12. And you shall set the bounds for the people all around, saying, Watch yourselves not to go up on the mountain or to touch its edge. Whoever touches a mountain is doomed to die. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or be shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn blasts lawn, they it is who will go up the mountain. So there's an idea here that uh, the Shekhinah, which is the sort of closest I think Judaism gets to an idea of a holy ghost, um, it's the feminine mothering aspect of God, the present aspect of God, the um, imminent aspect of God. And the idea is that the Shekhinah here is covering the mountain. And so people can't go near this presence of God and live. And so it's only once the Shekhinah has left the mountain and returned to the divine realm that people can enter up to the mountain and it will be safe. Yeah, so... There is, uh, I, I think the last one you said makes the most sense. The imminent nature of God is a good definition of the Holy Spirit or a good way to think about it. We have uh, right now a kind of confusion of, of terms or understanding of the Holy Spirit um, where it's been uh, conflated with hagiosophia, with holy wisdom. Um, and so when people are referring to the Holy Spirit by a pronoun, they they refer to the Holy Spirit with the pronoun she. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, which is all well and good and, and perfectly understandable. Um, there is a, a Christian uh, spiritual writer named Cynthia Bougeot who points out that we're not going to get to a place where we can think of God as beyond gender if our only strategy is to switch he for she. And she has a, a whole bunch of different options we might consider when talking about the Trinity. Uh, but at the moment, um, the Holy Spirit is, I think, a somewhat confused part of the Trinity, at least in our practice. Huh. Yeah, I'm totally confused by it. I'll confess. Yeah. Well, so is I. I actually, in seminary, raised my hand in a class and said, okay, what, what exactly is the Holy Spirit? Because I do not get it at all. Um, but my favorite definition of the Holy Spirit comes from Meister Eckhart, who said, um, when God laughs at the soul and the soul laughs back at God, the persons of the Trinity are begotten. 
when the father laughs at the son and the son laughs back at the father, that laughter gives pleasure. That pleasure gives joy, that joy gives love, and that is the Holy Spirit. <laughs> um, so I, I kind of love that idea of the Holy Spirit as, in a way, the the pleasure that derives from joy. Um, I love that. I and love, love that. or the love that derives from joy and pleasure, and that that comes from uh, these different aspects of the Trinity laughing at and with each other. That's beautiful. So I, I I was just listening last night to uh, an interview with Bono from U2 where he was talking about uh, the idea that happiness is cheap and joy is religious. Yeah. I agree with that entirely. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say stuck with me. Okay. So the people are at the foot of the mountain and they're being told not to touch it. And the reason they're being told not to touch it is because something dangerously holy is going on uh, up on that mountain. Yeah. And there's this whole process of purification that's happening at the bottom of the mountain too. Uh, Presumably. uh, Go ahead. Well, and, and we have a midrash, a kind of gynecological midrash to go with that. Um, I don't know how much, how much sense it makes. (laughs) So we get this commandment. Have we read 15? Uh, No, let's read 15. Let's read through 15. Okay. Uh, And Moses, starting at verse 14, and Moses came down from the mountain to the people and he consecrated the people and they washed their cloaks. And he said to the people, ready yourselves for three days. Do not go near a woman. Okay. So first let's talk about this problematic here that he said to the people, don't go yeah. near a woman. Right. Right. People, and that's that's what the Hebrew is too. We've got um, ha'am, the people, which almost always means truly everyone. In fact, am Yisrael is the classic phrase for the people of Israel, which certainly would include uh, every person regardless of sex or gender. Um, but that's certainly not the read here, right? People includes only men. Uh, so and if that weren't enough, then there is a warning that these men should not go near women. So, you know, I guess the first thing to say is I think it's important that we not, uh, move to apologetics of the sexism here without first pointing it out. Um, but to, move on to those explanations and apologetics. <laughs> we accept the sexism. Uh, <laughs> Let's get to the apologetics. <laughs> uh, so this or is, we don't accept it. We accept that it's there. Yes. Yes. Uh, uh, so uh, again, I don't know how much this is an apologetic and how much this is just a uh, explanation, but there's this question, why should they not go near the women? And I think the idea here is that everyone is supposed to be in a state of ritual purity. Uh, now this is one of the things that when I go and speak to churches, I think is one of the most commonly misunderstood ideas about Judaism. Okay. Oftentimes, and I I think this comes from, uh, many Christians, what they know about Judaism comes from the Bible, uh, whereas Judaism's had, you know, 2000 years of development since then, uh, that, uh, uh, there's this idea of sinfulness equated with impurity. And those two things are actually totally separate in Judaism, that 
impurity, and in particular, we're talking about ritual impurity here, has no connection to morality at all. It doesn't make you good or bad. It's about fitness to enter into holy spaces. That are you in a state of uh, special purity so that you can go to uh, places that have a special status? Uh, and interestingly, what it means to be pure here seems to be a disconnection uh, from the pieces of human life that are obvious uh, and that are about life. So any emission of any bodily fluid, whether it is blood, uh, menstruation, or semen, uh, renders someone ritually impure because it is a moment of living. It is a cycle of the inside of your body coming out, and that is seen as something that, for instance, the angels don't have. Uh, so we enter into this different state. Um, and so the notion here of why they should not go near women is because there is this idea that semen uh, conveys ritual impurity just like menstrual fluid conveys rit uh, ritual impurity. Right. So there are all sorts of questions here. I mean, it takes me back to my undergrad days and reading Mary Douglas's uh, Purity and Danger, uh, where she makes this point. And, and it was the first time in my life I kind of encountered this idea of the danger of the holy. Um, because having been raised a Methodist, uh, Methodist worship does not feel very dangerous <laughs> in any way, really. Um, uh, and it, you know, in part it's because it's, it has deliberately, I think, uh, excluded the mysterious, at least in the way it was practiced in my childhood. Although I'm sure if we have Methodist listeners, I'm guilty of calumny and I apologize and please write in and say why I'm wrong. But, um, so yeah, so this idea that, that we are not maybe completely made for worship, you know, that, that in order to be ready for worship, we have to come into some encounter with our created selves. Um, but another thing that takes me back to my undergraduate days is uh, my another professor of religion who specialized in Islam being very, very against Neoplatonism, this idea of the separation of the soul from the body, mm. which is one of the huge influencers on early Christianity. And, and one of the reasons why... Christians, although we worship an incarnate God who was a human being, have very few body practices of prayer um, beyond kind of asceticism, beyond fasting and scourging and, and things like that. Uh, you know, we have to look to Hinduism, for instance, for... Um, positive body practices. So, you know, the question is, is the flesh and is the soul in a kind of profound opposition to each other? And is it our religious task to somehow rid ourselves of the corruption of the flesh so we can go and be with God? Um, I mean, does that set of thinking fit into the, to these kind of purity laws, these purity rules? I, uh, so, you know, I, one of the funny things here is that I think really what contemporary Judaism does is we ignore this because we're uncomfortable with it. 
<laughs> most most of the purity laws, actually, I should say we ignore it, other than in the uh, most patriarchal ways, uh, because in a time when the temple in Jerusalem doesn't exist, uh, Judaism teaches that these laws no longer have importance because they are. Uh, we, we are all living in a state of ritual impurity because we can't be purified using the uh, special processes of the temple. But the ones that the rabbis keep alive are the laws dealing with women. Uh, so it continues to be the case in the Orthodox world, at least, uh, which uh, makes up about 10% of American Jews, uh, that women and men who are married to each other uh, do not come into any physical contact at all. I mean, even holding hands. Uh, during the time of a woman's menstruation and then for a full week following that. And only after that does a woman immerse in a ritual bath, a mikvah, um, and then they can resume physical contact and presumably sexual contact. Hmm. Well, yeah, okay. So basically both of our religions are so completely confused about this. Totally about whether the the body is a good or a bad thing or in which instances it can be considered good or bad. Totally. We end up just sort of ignoring the question. Okay. Um, well, one of my, one of my hopes is that we will actually uh, come to terms with our bodies at some point because <laughs> uh, otherwise things are going to be just very sad for us. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so, here we go. So here is the first kind of purity regulation, and it's before the laws have even been handed over to Moses. Yeah, look at that. Before the laws are handed over. I hadn't even thought of that, of course. And and it is about women. And it is about so, women, as it often is. Right. Okay. So, uh, dear listeners, we accept that in many ways this is a patriarchal text, and we do not affirm that patriarchy I would say, right? Yes, and unfortunately, uh, our children are our guarantors for this broken culture. There we go. However, our children are moving rapidly beyond gender, so maybe we won't have to care. Yeah. Uh, we'll all be referred to as, as they in the singular eventually. So, And the world might be better for it. It really might be. Okay, uh, do, you, do you want to read from verse uh, 16? I've been doing all the reading so far. Sure. On the third day, as morning dawned, there was thunder and lightning and a dense cloud upon the mountains and a very loud blast of the horn, and all the people who were in the camp trembled. Moses led the people out of the camp toward God, and they took their place at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was all in smoke. Actually, let's back up here for a second, because this is one of my favorite Midrashim ever. I say that a lot, though. I'm not sure you should believe me when I say it. Yeah. You got a lot of favorites. I do. I do. Uh, <laughs> There's this phrase here that they stood under the mountain in verse 17. Uh, and we translated it here as uh, they stood at the foot of the mountain. But the Hebrews, literally, they stood under the mountain. So there's a, a famous line in the Talmud that says, this teaches that God overturned the mountain upon them like an inverted cask and said to them, if you accept the Torah, fine. If not, there shall be your burial. Rabbi Acha Bar Yaakov observed, this resulted in a strong legal contest against the Torah, since it was a contract entered into under duress. Said Rava, another famous rabbi, but they reaccepted it out of their own volition in the days of Achashverosh, in the time of Esther. So 
this is a crazy midrash. Yeah. Right? It's it's a crazy midrash, first of all, because they're taking this literal statement, or the statement literally instead of idiomatically, but that they are willing to say that actually the covenant with God was entered into under duress. We didn't have a choice. Right. Uh, although they, they have some backing once again from chapter 32, which uh, uh, I keep referencing today, but it's very disturbing. And, and there is that sense of uh, not only duress, but uh, force being used. Yeah. To bring the people to heal. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's, it is the nature of covenant that we find in the book of Exodus too, where, yeah. uh, Covenant is all about, and you shall obey these laws because I took you out of the land of Egypt. I already did this, so now you have to listen. Right. Right. Um, but that is, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So here's my favorite thing about this Midrash, though. Mm-hmm. That is the version of the Exodus story that is in the Quran. Right, you were saying that. So uh, Islam adopted this idea of duress, is what you're saying. Islam adopts this, and actually what ends up happening is because Islam is coming out of a Middle Eastern culture where the Talmud is also emerging, Mm -hmm. the version of the uh, what we would call biblical narratives that are in the Quran – and most of the Quran is taken up with uh, what we call biblical characters, not with Muhammad, uh, that the versions of the stories in the Quran look like Midrash rather than like the Bible. That is cool. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That is really cool. So a lot of conversation uh, going on between two cultures um, leading to this. Yeah. Another interesting point for our cultural appropriation talk. Yeah. Well, uh, Book of Esther, the people are about to have a, um, a Holocaust practiced on them. And that is that what uh, Rava is saying is um, taking it totally out of context comes from Esther chapter nine, verse 27. The Jews confirmed and accepted is the line from the book of Esther. Remember, Esther, by the way, is the book that doesn't have God in it. Um, right. It, but the rabbis take that totally out of context and say, what is it that they were accepting? Well, they got together and they decided that they were going to accept the Torah of their own volition. Oh, okay. Okay. That's what's going on. Uh, but it kind of makes sense for the story in some way. It's right. It's like God has given us this law and promised to protect us. And we didn't like the way it was given to us. So we didn't accept it, but now, Oh, whoops. Turns out we need it. <laughs> so there we go. Okay. Okay. Um, we are on verse... 18. 18. Okay. Okay, verse 18. And Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord had come down on it in fire, and smoke went up like the smoke from a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the ram's horn grew stronger and stronger. Moses would speak. And God would answer him with a voice, and the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the mountaintop, and the Lord called Moses to the mountaintop, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to see, and many of them perish. 
and the priests too, who come near to the Lord, shall consecrate themselves that the Lord burst forth. So I them. have this as must stay pure rather than must consecrate themselves. And I think that's an important distinction because it's not about an active thing that they have to do, but instead something that they have to maintain a status. Okay, yeah, that is important. I wonder why Robert Alter chose consecrate there. Uh, you know, the the Hebrew here, uh, yitgatshu, is from the, the word kadosh, which means holiness. So it's not entirely clear. It's a reflexive form of holy. Make yourself holy or maintain your holy. It can be either. It's the, um, we're getting too grammatical here, but yeah. Okay, so Alter was thinking make yourself holy, but... Maybe not. Yeah. It, Hebrew doesn't actually, biblical Hebrew doesn't have a future tense. It just has an imperfect tense, meaning uh, actions that are unfinished yet. So it's sometimes hard to tell between what we would call future, meaning will do, and something that is incomplete, meaning maintain. Hmm. Right. And Moses said to the Lord, the people will not be able to come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set bounds to the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down, and you shall come up, you and Aaron with you, and the priests and the people shall not break through to go up to the Lord, lest he burst forth against them. And Moses went down to the people and said it to them. So the bursting forth, um, is is that an accurate translation? Is that a good translation? Bursting forth. Where was that? I'm looking right now, trying to figure. The very 24 end. here. Uh, yeah. Breakthrough is what I've got. Um, no, that's there too. Um, but at the end of the verse, lest he burst forth. Lest he burst them. forth against them. Yeah. La lota el Adonai pen bam. Yeah, burst forth. I, I like that. Okay. You have this sense that God, this ultimate reality, has kind of uh, funneled down to a conceivable and understandable and relatable shape upon this mountain. But beyond that kind of carefully delineated boundary is still this huge, thriving, gigantic divineness. Um, And if you kind of burst the bubble uh, like a... I don't know, like a dam, God will come flowing down the mountain and overcome everything. Yeah, you know, we we haven't talked about any of them, but there are a series of Midrashim and commentaries that deal with this chapter that talk all about how we have to be careful to understand that these are not meant to be literal moments, but instead are used, that these are words used so that human ears and minds can understand something which human ears and minds are incapable of understanding. Yeah. Yeah. So the people are literally in danger of having their literally, minds. Blown. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and if they, if they don't pay attention, uh, they will have no minds left because their minds will be totally blown. Um, so this is protective of us. This is careful. Um, and it, and it does also imply a certain humility, uh, on the part of the authors of the Torah who are saying, look, we can't, we can't get it. We may not even be really able to encounter it. And I think anyone who's ever had genuine religious experience knows this, right? Like you, you can maybe have 
five, 10 minutes of kind of holy ecstasy. <laughs> and that, and that, that's about it. That's about all our human minds and forms. It's the end of the numinous. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, so, so this is God doing that for us. It's just saying, I'm going to, I'm going to protect you. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we have come to the end of the chapter. Once again, dear listeners, um, Daniel, any final thoughts before we start? I off? didn't have any thoughts the last hour, so you know, no reason to throw them in now. Uh, you you are being far too modest. Um, okay, so Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus, is produced by Daniel Bogart and Carl Stevens, and is made possible by Christchurch Cathedral in the Diocese of Southern Ohio. Lost in the Wilderness is part of Exodus, a DSO Big Read, which you can learn more about by going to adsobigread.org. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album, All Things Are Being Made New. Uh, you can find me online at prayerbookart.com. Daniel, do you have any plugs you want to make? Uh, I will be at Christ Cathedral this Sunday at 1130. That's Sunday, February fourth. And I'm going to be talking about the very earliest moments of the Exodus. What do we know historically and archaeologically uh, about what happened or what didn't happen and how these stories uh, really emerged from the earliest myths that we have. Uh, So come and join us 1130 at Christ Cathedral. And I'd love to uh, come out to your church if you're not nearby. That sounds totally awesome. Uh, I will also point out that, um, Soon, you and I will be trying this experiment of live podcasting from the cathedral um, as part of their their Lenten program. So that'll be exciting for everybody. <laughs> but but we have some weeks. We have some we weeks. All right, dear listener, thank you so much for listening to us. Have a great week. Uh, remember today to go out and, and bless a tree and wish it Happy New Year or Happy Birthday. Sing Happy Birthday to a tree. There we go. All right, Talk brother. To Talk to you soon. <laughs>